0: Did you have a second glass of wine? Because the line in that book really shook me. Someone who hasn't been sleeping and drinks two glasses of wine a night. It's like, wow, bitch, drag me.
1: Welcome to Hold Up, the podcast where we watch our favorite rom-coms and decide whether they hold up. I'm Carrie Gilbert.
0: I'm Allison Gilbert.
1: And this is um a sode where we're not actually talking about a movie we are talking we about a movie we read about a movie we are talking about Nora Ephron's um book of essays i feel bad about my neck and other thoughts on being a woman um and we decided to do this as a mini-sode because if you've been listening to this podcast for a while or if you're just joining us kind of as an FYI um, Nora Ephron is very important to both of us, but particularly Allison. Allison, I would say she's pal- she's one of your inspirations. The inspo's,
0: <laughs> and we missed her. We've done most of her rom
1: coms. Maybe We've all. Done, her- I think
0: all of her rom coms. There are other Nora Ephron movies, including *Heartburn*, but I don't think I read *Heartburn* at quarantine season one. This was a real throwback to me because beginning of quarantine i would sit out on my porch when i still lived in california with a glass of rose because it was spring in california and i would read and i was reading heartburn her novel that she then made into a movie but it's not really a rom-com it's about a divorce Yeah, Um, i don't think heartburn is a rom-com at all but um, we might still watch it because the the book is good but then when i was reading this i was sitting in my room with a glass of rose (laughs) I was like, "Oh, back to reading Nora with Rose." Yeah. Uh, so, what did you think of this? Was it everything you wanted it to be, to and more? I really like her essays. I really so now I feel like I have a complete knowledge of Nora Ephron because I've seen all of her rom-coms. I've read her one of her novels. She has more than one, I think. Um, and now I've read a collection of her essays. I had done that before, but now I, you know, and I. The, like, rant. I don't always love a book of essays because it's hard for me to – you know, there's no, like, through-line story that's bringing you back to read more. But this had, a, like, a – this just felt like little drops of her, and there are, like, streams of consciousness that sound like uh, Sally Albright talking. Or Kathleen Kelly. Or there Kathleen Kelly. There was one Kelly. where she – the essay about reading
1: – like very much reminded me of Kathleen Kelly.
0: Yeah, the more like melancholy ones are very Kathleen Kelly, and the like grouchy ones are Sally. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, you're a you're a Kathleen, and I'm a Sally, and we just <laughs> unpacked that. Yeah, um, and I think there was also- one where I was like, this could be the rant on girls named Kimberly with no last name. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and so it just it did feel nostalgic for who she is. It also. She talks, the last essay in particular, she talks about death and dying because she was in her 60s when she wrote this and reading it. She, this book was published in 2006 um, and she died in 2012. And so reading it, you know, six years before her death or, and now eight years, almost nine years out from her death, there was, it's, you know, it carries different weight. Mm-hmm. She also talks about, you know, what she's going to do when she's 80 and 90 and she didn't make it to those ages. Right um i don't know it just it was the perfect sort of nora encapsulation of like funny insightful Mm -hmm. and also sort of sad and melancholy yeah what did you think
1: um i i really liked it i didn't like it as much as i did the first time i read it which is interesting because well maybe that's not true so i think i read this book for the first time when i was like young like 20s in my 20s very early 20s I think this is a book for women aging <laughs> right so this was like I was not the target audience um for this book but I think I think kind of what happened is like now I know myself better a little bit and or I know myself a lot better than I did in my early 20s and So there were pieces of this that I just didn't relate to in the same way. Whereas like when I was twenty two, I could be like, Oh, that makes sense. Or like, oh, I should think about that or like maybe I should stop that in my life. Yeah. Um, I was much more malleable at twenty two. Well, you're also
0: like, Oh, this is what being a grown-up is. And now you're like, Oh, I am a grown up and there are lots of ways to be a grown up. (laughs) Right. And yes, exactly. Um, but there were
1: parts of this I really liked. And like you said, there are it her voice comes through very much. You can hear her talking. It's like having a conversation. I, there were pieces where I was kind of like, I wonder to what extent Carrie Bradshaw was influenced by some of Nora Efron's writing because not the character of Carrie, because, because I think that Carrie Bradshaw is very, in some ways very different than Nora Efron's character's, but, like, the voice, like, there's there's a conversationality and there's, like, a use of rhetorical questions in a way that feels similar to, like, the Carrie
0: Bradshaw style of writing. Um, I would imagine that any, any woman writer, particularly urban-dwelling white women writers, are... She's heavily influenced by Nora Ephron. I say that as an urban dwelling white writer. <laughs>
1: yeah. No, and I think that's probably true. But anyway, so there there's an ease to her writing. There's it's like you're having a conversation with her. I like that. Um, there were some pieces that I did relate to more now that I'm older. Um you know, particularly the stuff about like parenting um hit different now that I'm a parent. There was a line in the things like what I wish I'd known. She has a line that I have adopted for myself and didn't even realize kind of where I got it. She says, never marry a man you wouldn't want to be divorced from, which is something that I've said a lot. Um, And not because I ever plan on divorcing my husband, but just because I think that when you get married, you don't necessarily know what's going to happen or how things change. And I think that, and as a lawyer, I know how, messy and horrible divorces can be. And I just think that's really
0: great advice. And I I have said that for years and I didn't ever realize where I got it from. There's a um, lot of good lines in the what I'd wish I'd known, the one that I was talking about that hit you and I are in different places in our lives because the one that hit close to me was the reason you're waking up in the middle of the night is the second class of wine. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one too. Right underneath there's no point in making pie crust from scratch. Nora I disagree. I love <laughs> making a pie crust from scratch. I hate um, a store-bought pie crust.
1: I also like the world's greatest babysitter burns out after two and a half years. I have to keep that in mind. I haven't really hired
0: babysitters yet because we're in a pandemic, um, but I feel like that's a good one to, to keep in mind. So I'm not a parent, but I have been a lifelong nanny, and I'm trying to think the world's greatest babysitter burns out after two and a half years. Yeah. I also just think like you change and the kids change and- mm-hmm and your need for a baby surgery. Like when they're little, if you're a working parent, I've been like a full-time nanny for working parents. Um, and so they're little and they need you all the time. Once they're two and a half, they're going to school. Like you're as, from the nanny perspective, like your hours are just going to get cut. Um, yeah, that's like change, change up your needs and your nannies every two years. The other thing that, um, the the one that where she
1: talks about aging she talks about aging a lot in this book but one of her last essays is called like considering the alternative meaning like we could be dead so maybe aging isn't all that bad and she talks about how some magazine editor called her to do an um to write for an issue on aging and the editor pitched like doing an essay about like It. this is our day like women over 50 like this is our time and she says but it's not this isn't our day it's their day and that really kind of like struck me because um of this whole like millennial versus gen z thing that's like happening on social media and specifically on tiktok stupid. it's so stupid and sitting here
0: with my side part wearing skinny jeans (laughs) well but also
1: like also like you know, I keep seeing these videos of like millennial, generally white women, like battling Gen Z and being like, you know, I know better about X, Y, and Z. And it's like, ma'am, let them, like, we are in our 30s, like, our late 20s and our 30s. Like, we do not need to be battling the 22 year olds. Like, the oldest millennials are 40. <laughs> we don't need to be a part of this this is their time like let them be 22 you do not need to be 22 anymore and that and like you get to define what 40 and 35 and 29 looks like for you absolutely like it doesn't it doesn't have to mean a certain thing you get to define what it looks like but stop battling
0: 22 year olds let them be 22 let them have their day as a 32 year old almost uh, um i don't well, like, I don't feel the need to be throwing down a middle part, and like, wide leg jeans don't look good on me. So, if skinny jeans are the new mom jeans, then I'm rocking a mom jean. Like,
1: <laughs> I, we like, we're getting ready to go to Target this morning, and I got dressed and I was like, I look like a mom. And Jeff looked at me and he was like, You are a mom. And I
0: was like, and I look like a mom, and oh. I'm not. I'm in skinny jeans. I'm in a, I'm in a comfy sweater. I'm in a Loyola University sweatshirt because it's game day, not for y'all listening. So, as you're listening, I'm either very happy or very sad, but whatever. I'm going into a positive, but I fully look like a mom running errands today.
1: Yeah. And, and honestly, like I was thinking about it as I was reading that piece of her book and like, there's something so wonderful about aging and liberating about aging and being able to not worry. I mean, I still have worries, but I worry about very different things now than I did in my twenties. And I enjoy different things now than I did in my twenties and I would never like exchange my twenties for anything. I loved them, but
0: I'm also like back to them.
1: What? We're too old to go back to them. (laughs) Right. There's also like a comfort in being past that and having different goals and ideas and now, um, and it's their day. And like, the other thing that I just – I think I've made this rant before, but, like, Gen Z is fucking powerful and formidable. And, like, let them have their day and they might save us all. <laughs>
0: you hope they save us all. We're fucked without them. Guys, <laughs> there's no one Gen Z listening to this podcast, but there's there's pressure kids. Um I also – one of the things I really loved about the each essay – title told you what you thought the essay was going to be about and that it's about something entirely and differently. Like the one about moving on as she talks about falling in love post her divorce, I think mm-hmm. we can assume from Mr. Carl Bernstein. So much political intrigue in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, And it's actually just about her apartment and like how much she loved her apartment. You think it's just like a sort of superficial rant in her apartment, but it's not. It's where her children were brought up and where she married the man she would stay married to until her death. And there was one line in it. She's going on about like a police instance in the apartment and, uh, and, oh, and like being a witness to it. And she says, um, I have to say mine was the best version since it included a short, extremely insightful and probably completely irrelevant digression about the inpa- impatient childless people have for people with children and bicycles. And I just thought this woman can make, irrelevant digressions art um and i just love how in this thing about her apartment and how much she loves her apartment and essentially about like how she raised her children you get this long thing about her inserting herself into this police (laughs) investigation (laughs) and how she just had to go on a digression about uh, the impatient childless people have for child people with children and i just also that apartment cost fifteen hundred dollars
1: isn't that crazy in the city of new york in the city Although of Manhattan,
0: talking- on the island of Manhattan. She talks about how that's now changed, but. Well, she also had to pay a fucking key fee, which I've never heard of, but Jesus. Then when she's talking about the city, I just like, I, we are fully in a city and I miss a city. I miss like activity. Mm-hmm. I was in Lincoln Square today and I was like, maybe I'll just like walk around and pop into shops. And I just.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, she talks about like, um, at one point and she has a whole pe- a whole essay on maintenance, which we'll talk about cause there's some things, but she does talk about how like in a city, there are a million like nail salons and you can get your nails done really well for really cheap. And mm-hmm. that was one thing that, um, Cincinnati did not have that I missed about Chicago. And I'm glad to be back in Chicago.
0: That is, uh, Chicago has it. And also like, I feel like New York is uniquely, I remember when I was a freshman in college and i lived in philadelphia and i was horribly sad all the time so i used to take the bus to new york to visit our friend shout out to Newvalia. and every like the when i would first get there we'd like wake i'd like get there on a friday night after class and then we'd wake up on saturday morning and she'd be like let's go get her nails done and we'd walk down to a place where like truly they do your nails for like 15 bucks and like wax your eyebrows and lip for eight it was it's uh, it's just yeah. a truly lovely thing about new yeah. york we were not on the upper west side because that's fancy. I just, okay, so, like, I think that there are things in this book that, for me,
1: do not hold up.
0: Yes, there are things that are, like, oh, you're a 60-something white woman writing this in 2006, and, like, I also think, because she's going through, like, the things that are expected of women, so I do think it's commentary on, like, what is expected of us. Yes. (laughs) But also, like the section on exercising and the like yeah there's definitely some like weight stuff in here there at one point she talks about how in college she um went to college 106 pounds and ballooned up to 124 yeah and keeps calling herself fat at
1: 124 pounds I was like ma'am that is not at
0: the end of it was now she's still at the end of that essay I don't know where but she talks about how like She's still incredibly thin and 124 pounds, which was the weight she was when she thought she was incredibly fat. So there is a level of self-awareness in that like she was a teenager. She had just gone to college and she was being told that gaining, I guess, 20 pounds was horrific. And now she is that same weight and she knows she's thin. Like there is a level of self-awareness, but I also just think the way we use the word fat and the way we think about fatness has changed and should continue to change
1: right and like what it what a quote-unquote like acceptable or unacceptable weight is like first of all there's no such thing as an acceptable or unacceptable weight like there's no line there but second of all like if we if there were one it certainly wouldn't be at 126 pounds 126
0: pounds pounds is like i was at every adult height conventionally yeah i don't think i've been I, I do I have never I have not been under 120 pounds in my adult light. Like right. It's just wild. But also this is still mega challenging and we will address this in our forthcoming mini we have planned. But there's like what is it in women that makes us so afraid to gain weight and to be thought of as fat? And like why is it that there's such an inherent fear of of having of being in a larger body. Like what does that right. mean? And I don't know that in 2006 we were talking about it. And certainly Nora Ephron wasn't thinking or talking about like, what is it that makes me so afraid to gain weight? Right. Uh, well,
1: and she says like, you know, like when she gained that weight, she then went on a diet and has been on has a been diet, on a ever, diet since. ever since. And now, she, you know, like now she's living at that weight. And it's sort of like the futility of diets. Um like, maybe diet culture has been lying to us this whole time. Just Yeah, there's a
0: level of, like, I've been on a diet ever since, and it's maybe not working. And she doesn't go as far to be like, oh, none of it's working. It's all a capitalistic lie. Like, right. we just weren't there in 2006. She does right. have a line in the end when she's talking about death. Um. And she like, here are some questions I'm constantly noodling over. Do you splurge or do you hoard? Do you live every day as if it's your last? Or do you save your money on the chance that you'll live 20 more years? Is life too short or is life going to be too long? Do you work as hard as you can or do you slow down and smell the roses? And where do carbohydrates fit into all this? Are we really going to have to spend our last years avoiding bread, especially now that bread in America is so unbelievably delicious? And what about chocolate? There's a question for you, Gertrude Stein. What about chocolate? And that's like, it's like, it's like, you know, we are not going to spend any amount of years in our life worrying about bread. No. You're absolutely right. Not even the last years. Bread in America is so delicious. Right. We are not going to spend any, unless you are a celiac person, in which case there are a lot of great gluten-free bread options. And I hope that you find one that works for you. Unless you have an allergy, we will not be spending time worrying about bread.
1: No, no, because it doesn't, it doesn't bring us joy and... We can live a healthy lifestyle and we can achieve health without counting carbs.
0: Copy that. As a diabetic, I have to count the carbs in that bread, but that doesn't mean I can't eat the bread. Great. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I think maybe we get, maybe cut this and we get this into this more in our next one, but I do think there's a level of which anti diet culture, there's a level of ableism and that it doesn't understand that some of us have to do diet culture things to stay alive. And how do we, how do we, I have to count carbs to be able to eat and to keep my body alive. How can I do that and divorce that from any level of judgment? Like I should be able to count carbs and however much or however little I'm eating is fine. There's no judgment on it. It's fine. I just use it as a metric to mm-hmm. tell myself how much medicine to give. And I think there's sort of an anti diet culture that's just like, fuck counting carbs. And it's like, that's a really lovely thought, but it's not a reality for me and a lot of other chronically ill people in the world. So how can we achieve both of those things? There was one line that I was
1: like, this wasn't okay, even in 2006. Was it about um, someone hmm? Korean? Mm-hmm. There, there's two. Actually, there were two where I was like, this is not okay. It wasn't okay in 2006 it's not okay now but particularly because the age the stuff about asian women i was reading like hot on the heels of atlanta and i was like "Oof, this hits you know, i different. watched
0: an, i was watching an episode of happy endings where someone says does like a korean grandma impression and i was like mm, always bad but not this week especially not so she's talking asian about
1: porn. in the maintenance she's talking about hair um and she says Every so often, a rich friend asks me if I'd like to go on a trip involving a boat, and all I can think about is the misery of five days in a small cabin struggling with a blow dryer, and I'm never going back to Africa. The last time I was there in 1972, there were no hairdressers out in the bush, and as far as I was concerned, that was the end of that place. Oh, Nora. Yikes. First of all, like, Africa is a huge-ass fucking continent, and great portions of it are
0: urban. Urban. (laughs) cities.
1: And cities. And there are all kinds of people living there and they get their hair done. And maybe that's not where she was. Maybe she was like out on, like in rural, some portion of Africa that's rural and she was not doing her hair, which first of all, like if that's the kind of trip you're taking, like maybe just let that need your hair done. Yeah. But second of all, like that's not the entire fucking continent of Africa. (laughs) Yeah. That was a yikes, yikes, yikes um and then she immediately goes into a thing about asian women which is positive but it's it's very much based on like our stereotypes of asian women it's on page 34 and she says i envy all asian women i mean have you ever seen an asian woman whose hair looks bad no you haven't why is that so it's it's a compliment but it it's very much based positive on racism right it's very much based on a stereotype and it feeds into this like objectification and fetishization yeah, of this, asian like, women which is using to their beauty which is part of what contributed to the murders in atlanta and that man's like whole fucked up view of asian women so i was reading these that like one after the other and i was like nora yeah come on
0: yeah that was let's we be, we we can be better That was maybe my least favorite essay in the whole thing. And I do also think like Nora is a a white woman of a certain amount of wealth. She and Tina Fey, I think have a lot of their writing styles are very different, but their blind spots are very similar Mm -hmm. and their socioeconomic and um, sort of like status is. Is similar, and that they're both sort of revered and wonderful writers, which is true. Who also have these sort of like extreme blind spots, particularly in terms of race and specifically like Asian women. That I think is, as someone who is very heavily influenced by both Tina Fey and Nora efron it's like an interesting thing to think about and think like, okay, just like how do we unpack our heroes and how mm-hmm. do we acknowledge their shortcomings and their failings without, with, while still holding them accountable to it. I'm not, you know, we don't want to be like, but it's Tina Fey and Nora Ephron, so it doesn't matter. It does matter. <laughs> right. Um, And, but still sort of honor them for the ways in which they've contributed to the society while not glossing over the racism. Right. Um, And it's sort I mean, if you think about Nora Ephron's movies, all of which we've talked about and all of which we've brought up, they're white, they're movies about, you know, upper middle class white women. Right. Um. You know, I think she probably did have a pretty strong blind spot when it came to race. Um,
1: Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, this is a woman who is steeped in privilege. Like, there, I mean, she at this point in her life is fairly wealthy. She's fairly successful. She's white. She's conventionally attractive and thin so there's privilege upon privilege upon privilege and that's not to discount any of her life experience or you know what we can gain from reading her work um or the way that she speaks to a particular experience but it is a particular experience and it's an experience that we have a great deal of work that speaks to and so how do we add other voices to that to and other experiences and like you said like not have blind spots um about her shortcomings because she's i mean do- is after all a human being right but as human beings we can also like learn and grow and be better and part of that is reading and consuming work and figuring out like what what doesn't work
0: yeah and how do we be better than the generation before? no one's saying to no one's saying to cut Nora Ephron or Tina Fey out of the zeitgeist. We'd lose good work that way. But how do we you're right, add new voices into that, and as creators do something better, make not repeat their mistakes and in fact do right. better than they did
1: um one last thing on the maintenance essay, so I literally was reading that while getting my hair done for the Mm -hmm. first time since february 2020 um and it's look great thanks well okay so she has this she says i was categorized by my colorist as a single process customer whatever was being done to me which honestly i have no idea how to describe did not involve peroxide and therefore took only 90 minutes every six weeks or so Whenever I complained about how long it took, I was told that I was lucky I wasn't blonde. Where hair dye is concerned, being blonde is practically a career. (laughs) I am not blonde, but at the time that I was reading this, I was getting highlights, and I was there for two and a half hours, probably, probably three hours.
0: Yeah, the last time I got my hair like full colored, and I got like, I got like a, I don't know what they call, I got like a a bright color into it. So there was a the bleaching process. And then there was the dying process. I was in the salon for four and a half hours.
1: Yeah, it was long, but it also felt great because I haven't done any of this maintenance kind of stuff
0: in a year. Well, on the point, like, I think, <laughs> wait, you maybe cut this out in the point when I was talking about a bikini wax, maybe it's still in there. Who knows? Do whatever you want or don't. Get your hair colored, wax whatever hair you don't want. If you're my friend, Erica, who I know if she's listening is loudly shouting or laser because she loves laser, do or don't do whatever you want, but don't let's divorce ourselves from the idea that these are the things we need to be doing to be women, Mm -hmm. that we are allowed to have gray hair and a full bush and however, whatever your body looks like, you're allowed to be that and still be a woman worthy. There are two quotes I think we should end on. One is in the maintenance episode. Once I picked up a copy of Vogue while having my hair done and it cost me $20,000, but you should see my teeth. Hilarious. And the last one is in the acknowledgments. as a woman seriously considering Botox. I would also like to thank all the people who have labored so hard to stop the forces of gravity where I'm concerned. As a result, I look approximately one year younger than I am. You know who you are. (laughs) I like read that. And I was like, maybe that means I shouldn't get Botox because it's not really doing anything. And then I was like, but I'm gonna. (laughs) I mean, thank you, Nora. Do what works for you.
1: Join us next week. We're going to be for our main episode. We'll come out next week and we're going to be talking about John Tucker must die. I'm super excited about John Tucker must die. I think that it will definitely have problems, but I really think this movie is hysterical and doesn't have any business being as good as it is.
0: I've only seen it in a dry bar, which you have to watch it on silent with speaking of all the maintenance. God, I can't wait to go back to dry bar. Okay. (laughs) so anyway um where can people find us you can find us on instagram at hold underscore up underscore pod and on twitter at hold underscore up underscore podcast and wherever you get your podcasts and you can rate and review and subscribe we love we love some spicy reviews not spicy be nice to us please we're very sensitive (laughs) now we're gonna get mean reviews because i asked for them god damn it just don't just don't just give us nice reviews okay thank you (laughs) bye Bye.